Hi there. My name is Phil Kehoe, and with my co-host, Rachel Jones, this is 50 Shades of Green, a Climate Group podcast presented by Climate Group ahead of Climate Week NYC 2022. With a thrilling schedule of events set to commence this year, we're taking the opportunity over the next few weeks to meet with some attendees and highlight their events. Today, we have five incredible events centered on innovative environmental justice initiatives across the United States and abroad. The first of which is Making Paris Work for the People, Adaptation at Scale in Climate Vulnerable Nations, hosted by the United Nations Capital Development Fund on Tuesday, September 20th. The Local Climate Adaptive Living Facility, or LOCAL, is a mechanism from the Paris Agreement aimed at channeling promised financial commitments to local governments and their communities for adaptation to the impacts of climate change. For this event, UNCDF aims to highlight the potential of LOCAL and how recognition of LOCAL could unlock finance for impactful adaptation for the communities and people that need it the most. According to LOCAL officials, not enough finance is getting to the countries that need it most for adaptation to the impacts of climate change, despite big promises. So, this event will explore how impactful adaptation takes place at the local or community level, and how there are modalities within the Paris Agreement that can be made to work for the people. Secondly, we have Intergenerational Equity and Climate Justice, Reimagining Commonwealth Youth Participation in Climate Action, hosted by the Commonwealth Youth Climate Change Network on Tuesday, September 20th. The Commonwealth Youth Climate Change Network aims to build the capacity of young people in their endeavors to address climate change and other environmental issues and advocate on climate change from a youth perspective. The network supports actions that empower young people to translate climate change problems into effective policies that will have a measurable impact on youth well-being. It also links projects implemented by its members across the Commonwealth in order to develop common actions and campaigns. Participants at this event will have the opportunity to pose questions and engage in discussion with the youth-led panel with an exhibition of some of the amazing works and climate action intervention by young people. In the wake of revitalizing climate commitments and finalizing country plans on the road to COP27 later this year, the Climate Week event is a strategic reformational turn that can offshoot youth participation and remind decision makers and other stakeholders on young people's transformational power if correctly imprinted into their implementation plans. It is a platform for youth to navigate concrete innovative solutions, review evidence-based data sets, and strengthen our collective actions against climate change as we get it done. Third, we have hashtag powering jobs, building the workforce of the future to accelerate universal energy access, hosted by Power for All on Monday, September 19th. Power for All's mission is to build and mobilize a network of partners across the energy access ecosystem, including civil society, social entrepreneurs, policymakers, utilities, and local change makers in developing countries. That together can accelerate the adoption of decentralized renewable energy. Collectively with their partners, Power for All drives awareness, activates markets, and catalyzes advocacy that will help transform the way energy is used, generated, and paid for to end energy poverty faster. In this event, Power for All CEO, Christina Skierka, will share the findings of the hashtag Powering Jobs annual survey, which provides insights and critical requirements to build a decentralized renewable energy workforce in developing countries that will accelerate energy access and just transition. Hashtag Powering Jobs is a global campaign to ensure that the needed skills and jobs in clean distributed energy are created to achieve universal electricity access. 
Through this event, Power for All will emphasize that decentralized renewable energy systems have the potential to fast track sustainable development goal seven on affordable, reliable, and sustainable energy for all and create significant and decent job opportunities, especially for women and youth in the rural areas of developing countries. Despite an increasing demand for off-grid energy, there is a shortage of the skilled workforce needed to deliver universal electricity access. Power for All looks forward to an insightful discussion on how to improve access to these critical areas of need. Fourth, we have Rainforests, Climate, and You, Disrupting Climate Finance, hosted by Health in Harmony on Wednesday, September 21st. Humanity is facing increasingly dire consequences of the climate, nature, and justice crises, and the traditional approaches are no longer working. Health and Harmony is proud to present Disrupting Climate Finance, a cutting-edge event convened to raise awareness and highlight the importance of direct-to-community financing for nature-based solutions designed by rainforest communities. A diverse group of leaders from indigenous peoples and local communities will explore emerging climate finance models that enable direct investment into community solutions. Speakers include Assistant Professor of Indigenous Health at the University of North Dakota, Dr. Nicole Redvers. UN Climate Advisor and Founder of Climate Cardinals, Sophia Kiani, and Marubo Tribesman and Organizer for the Union of Indigenous Peoples of the Javari Valley, UNIVAJA, Manuel Chorimpa. Health in Harmony would like to give a special thanks to their headline sponsor, Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill LLP of New York City and their media sponsor, Change Now. And finally, Protecting Our Northern Forest, why the Boreal is Critical to Saving the Planet, hosted by Natural Resources Defense Council on Thursday, September 22nd. The Boreal Forest of Canada, the homeland of more than 600 indigenous communities, stands as one of the world's last great primary forests. The Boreal holds more carbon than any other terrestrial ecosystem and is a refuge for some of North America's most treasured species, making it essential to addressing the dual crises of climate change and biodiversity collapse. Yet, the logging industry, which clear cuts more than a million acres of climate-critical forest each year to make toilet paper, paper towels, lumber, and other products, threatens the future of this irreplaceable ecosystem and the ways of life of many indigenous peoples. First Nations like the Cree have been at the forefront of boreal protection and re-envisioning a more sustainable economic model in the boreal. Mandy Gull, the Grand Chief of the Cree, will describe the Cree's landmark achievement of a nearly 25 million acre protected area on their territory of Eu Itsi, the nation's goals for managing and expanding the protected area, and how Cree management of the land benefits not only the Cree, but the entire planet. She will also discuss other indigenous-led management initiatives, including the Forest Guardians Program, the Cree's vision for sustainable alternative economies, and the inextricable connection between indigenous self-determination and achieving a sustainable future. Register for all these wonderful events and more at www.climateweeknyc.org. Following our event highlights, we have with us a very special guest, Deandra Mariset Esparza from Intersectional Environmentalist. Intersectional Environmentalist offers training and consulting, creates resources and activations, and more to deepen awareness about environmental justice and the role diverse voices play in environmental history and current environmental solutions. Deandra, welcome to Fifty Shades of Green. We are so excited and thrilled to, to have you on our inaugural first podcast and excited to hear about all the amazing work that you're doing at IE. So to kick it off with uh, my first question here, I would love to hear what 
exactly do you do at IE? Hey, yeah, thanks for that intro. Really excited to be here. Um, yeah, and excited to share a little bit about what I do behind the scenes at IE. Um, so at IE, I currently serve as the executive director, which really just allows me to serve as a strong support system for all of the folks on our team and the friends and mentors and peers that we collaborate with in this space that are doing all the awesome work to create the educational resources and the empowering spaces and the art and the fun opportunities for people in our community with this shared vision of just ensuring that grassroots efforts are effectively supported and organized and creating really positive solutions and results for people on the planet. So getting to kind of serve as like the glue or the soil or however you want to think about it, just like a really strong support system for how all of that comes together has been the coolest job I've ever had, for sure. And I think that something that has been a really good learning about that is that people tend to have a really rosy view of what it means to be an executive director, but it's very um, in the weeds, if you will. Uh, if you work in grassroots efforts, then, then you probably know exactly what I'm talking about, but that can look like a lot of things. So while we do a lot of really exciting things on the public facing front, um, being a support system, sometimes, especially in a startup environment, sometimes means being the one to call the IRS or the insurance companies or the banks for hours on end while the team is out really fulfilling the work that we actually want to do. And that can also, you know, really look like internal systems that are really simple and day to day that make all the difference. So like making sure that we have really strong internal reflection meetings so that we feel really grounded in what we're doing on a day to day or building and nurturing strong communications and reports internally so that we don't get siloed or disjointed in any way. So it's a lot of behind the scenes work, but it's definitely been so rewarding to see like when things actually start coming together and flowing really nicely, how much more focused we can be on the exciting work that we really, really want to do. No, that's that's wonderful to hear. And honestly, kudos to you for keeping it all going and, and acting as a support system throughout this whole process, as I know it has been and can continue to be challenging to be working in, in this sort of space. And th this absolutely leads into my next question, which is out of the entire robust body of work that IE has has already done and, and completed, what do you think is the most important bit of work that IE has completed over the, the past several years that you all have been around? Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's um, that's a great question. Considering the moment that we're in, having gone through a pandemic and a really difficult economic landscape that hurts the communities that we serve most. I think the most important thing IE has done has been creating in real life spaces for folks to add that community healing. It comes so beautifully when you're with like-minded folks who are just as passionate about people on the planet as you are rather. And we've spent two years creating countless resources based on the topics that our community wants to learn about most. And we've created pathways for countless people in our community to have space on our platform and share their beautiful works and stories and engaged with representatives from the White House and industry leading corporations. And all of that was so impactful in its own way. And there's no discrediting the power of reach on social media, but environmentalism at the end of the day, it's kind of all for naught if we don't also enjoy the outdoors together. So our new program called Earth Sessions is really, really aiming at that intimate healing that we also desperately need offline. 
which is bringing local communities together around art and music and food so that people can re-engage and normalize knowing who their local environmental justice leaders are in a super optimistic context. So that's something that I would say has been, whether we knew it or not, in the making over the past two years as we've been slowly emerging from the pandemic. And we've only had a few events so far, but we're planning many more. And so far they've been incredibly fulfilling and empowering and we're really excited about it. No, that's that's wonderful to hear. And I tend to agree. Like there is so much that has gone on over the past several years, especially related to COVID and and many of the other things that have impacted our environment since then, that I think it, it's so important to just take a moment to be able to reflect on that and to be able to heal a little bit. And I would really love to, to hear more so about one, how do you incorporate this sense of healing and all the amazing things that IE has, has done over the past several years to account for this? And how does that factor into your own definition of environmental justice? And what does this overarching sort of broad, sometimes like pie in the sky concept of EJ, what, what does that personally mean to, to you uh, as a person operating and acting as a leader in, in this space? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I think that I do appreciate, you know, just a formal definition of environmental justice, really speaking to it as a social movement that just directly addresses unfair exposures to environmental harms, right? So that could be poor and marginalized communities being poorly impacted by resource extraction, hazardous waste and other land uses. So absolutely appreciate kind of the more formal definition take of environmental justice. In addition to that, I really appreciate and EJ is also associated with community agency, like community led solutions, which a deeper dive on EJ work would absolutely speak to that, which also helps ensure that developments for local people are included in environmental decision making in the narrative of movements, right? Like how just how their stories are being told, and especially in educational systems that are supporting the next generation of hopefully environmentalists. I think the bad news is that people have been driven very far away and siloed away from how systems even work, that sometimes mending those barriers to participation can be quite deep and, and often quite complex. So we do require a lot of education and awareness and patience as we create more inclusive systems that really take everyone along for that awareness ride, if you will, so that we can achieve that active participation on everyone's front. But the good news is that technology and social media have really opened that door significantly to expediting even small levels of awareness that can serve as that powerful catalyst, right, for young people to become aware early on in life, because that's when we create generations of strong environmentalists who are passionate about how their projects and their fields of study and their daily lives as citizens are going to impact people on the planet. So it is unfortunate that our systems will take a really long time to course correct, but we do have things like social media and technology to make sure that we are effectively empowering the next generation to achieve environmental justice, which requires active participation and, and access to the movement on all fronts. For sure. I mean, I think taking that sort of sense of connection and being able to, to amplify that and create social movements is, is so important, especially in this day and age of environmental activism. And with that, I know one of the things, one of the, the strategies that IE tends to take part in is people taking the IE pledge. And I would love to hear more so your thoughts about the, the pledge and, and what that means to you and how more people can 
actively take part in in the pledge if you want to expound upon that. As most people know that know, i.e. they know our founder too, Leah Thomas. And before Leah created and shared the IE pledge, I know that myself and many, many others had kind of been struggling uh, qu quite a lot to convince people to center the concerns and, and injustices happening to people in various industries. So that could be like garment workers in the fashion industry, that could be farmers in agriculture spaces, that could be factory workers in tech, and, and the list kind of just goes on and on. And the challenge was getting people to listen and then getting people to actively participate in that dialogue within their respective fields. But after Leah released the pledge, those calls to action that we had all been slowly trying to even figure out how to phrase, try to get people to you know participate in a little bit more, suddenly became extremely undeniable. And the best part was that those of us who had been struggling, because of all of those struggles, we were really ready. We were really ready to mobilize after Leah released that pledge. I think much of the works really big and small that folks were trying to do was calling on folks to stand in solidarity with BIPOC, with LGBTQ+, disabled and other historically silenced communities. And we were asking folks to not ignore the intersections of environmentalism and social justice, to use our personal positions to advocate, um, to be more proactive in learning and to just rethink emotional labors that we were often asking of folks when it came to our own personal educational journeys and also asking people to just humbly share learnings along the way, knowing that no one's journey is perfect, but that it's so, so important to engage. And so Leah so perfectly encapsulated all of that in this pledge. And I think that it's been really challenging for many to see that pledge or see other people that have released really powerful calls to action as well, and maybe not remain silent during really pivotal political and cultural moments that impact people in really harmful ways. But despite it being really hard to maybe break away from a traditional take on maybe just staying silent and not saying anything, I think it's an important growing pain that definitely pales in comparison to the issues some communities have had to live with. It's a, a growing pain that I think our society really, really needed and, and has needed for a long time. There are so many people out there that I think would still would like to get involved in the EJ fight, but sometimes you, you just get overwhelmed and it's like you don't really know where where to start. So what would you say to someone who is sort of on the outside looking in but wants to to join in on, on this sort of movement to get them potentially more involved and more comfortable in this space? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, thinking about how you start your environmental justice journey is is so important. And I personally think that starting your environmental justice journey is best suited in areas that you're already really passionate about, right? I hope that people really avoid the anxiety of thinking they need to know everything. <laughs> like if you really love fashion, suddenly feeling the need to become like a solar or energy expert, that's a that's really anxiety inducing. And even though it's fun to learn about different things, you're probably best advocated, at least at the start, to learn about areas that you're really passionate about. So that could be fashion, farming, agriculture, tech, design, I don't know, dance, film, it could be literally anything. And there are so many ways that we can explore how our favorite spaces might have opportunities to be more inclusive or might have opportunities to tell people stories better or might be able to address inequities and in how systems have strategic 
traditionally worked and maybe even strategically created barriers to entry. And usually if you start with areas that you really love, you're also more likely to find some friends, some pals to do that work with. And I I think that's super critical. Protecting people on the planet is absolutely work that we should all be doing in community because doing it alone is often what starts that overwhelm to begin with. No, I, I absolutely agree. I think being able to find that sense of community and then incorporate that your own sense of community into your personal EJ and climate journey is so important. And I think it speaks well to a lot of people's journeys as well, especially in, including my own. Being able to get into the climate communication space is something that I have really valued and being able to see a lot of these different perspectives. Yeah. And communications is so, so important. I mean, you're talking to, if you're talking to IE at all, then yeah, we could definitely emphasize how important communications are to us. We think storytelling is, is super powerful. And I would love to hear how you got started with that. But I just to reiterate, like literally how simple someone's start could be. I literally, when I was, I don't know, I must have been like 23 or 24, just hosted wine nights in my apartment and coerced my friends with wine to come to my apartment and just watch environmental documentaries with me. And that was largely how we got started. So yeah, it can be something as, as simple as that. Oh, for sure. And I think these are the sorts of accessible actions that people listening at home could potentially take to be more inclusive. But if you have any more examples of things p people could potentially be doing to really kickstart their journey and maybe just like starting small, I think is something that people are eager to, to hear about. Yeah, I think starting small is really important. And if you are starting your, your journey in environmentalism, um, or more specifically, you know, environmental justice, and really trying to make sure that you're rooted in that from the start, I would recommend two things. I think one would be practicing being an advocate in conversation with those who are already around you just by maybe just sharing what you're learning. And that might be hard at times. Not everybody, you know, maybe like an uncle at the dinner table or something. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> no offense to uncles. But if you engage in that way, it'll be difficult at times, but you'll also uncover who around you is going to be a really good support system for your learning journey. Because none of us know everything at the start, right? We're not born with this knowledge. And I think on the, the second half, because the first one's really rooted in just practicing, engaging in dialogue, right? And sharing what you're learning. The second one is finding a way to learn directly from local environmental justice leaders who have already done that intimidating work and have already paved smoother paths um, so that they can just share their stories with you and, and help you find the paths that are best for you. Learning learning from elders in EJ work is so essential and I think will give you a sense of guidance while you're also, you know, throughout your the early days of your journey, assessing new ways of looking at how you can show up. For sure. And, you know, I think a lot of what we tend to focus on is is very like doom and and gloom and it it doesn't feel like there's a lot of hope in this sort of movement as we tend to focus more so on on the negative but as we learn from people before us i think sometimes it's helpful to be optimistic and i know that you and and ie focus a lot on climate optimism and how does that climate optimism and being able to see the positives and benefits, like how does that influence the work that you do? And why do you think keeping that sort of level head and keeping a look forward is important in your work? I think climate optimism is so influential in environmental justice work. I think finding optimism that is still rooted 
in a really deep understanding and appreciation of, of issues and struggles is the most powerful way to resist that doom and gloom that you're mentioning here. I think that that's how communities have historically created really empowering community systems and art that is rooted in resistance and growth and hope and love. And I really hope that I think over time, we found that as such a necessity with the work that we were doing, because so much of the work that we were doing was also supporting the work of other organizations. So it almost became from a communication standpoint, that much more important to understand the responsibility that we had to portray people's work as optimistic, right? So when you're centering, you know, small grassroots efforts that are doing really dope work in various parts of the country where it's so needed, making sure that the way you're storytelling and the way you're communicating it is suggesting like, hey, this is the hope. This is the work. This is part of the answer. And that's so important. And I think that that's also what, as annoying as it can be sometimes with like, I'm just going to say it again, your uncle at the table. <laughs> as annoying as it can be to think at a high level, like, oh, it's the, it's the negativity that turns people off. Well, sometimes maybe, but also I think it's largely hopelessness that turns people off. And so climate optimism also has that power to bring so many more people into the conversation and talking about the solutions that people are testing and trying and also finding to be really successful is how we get people to believe that we can do this. We can totally save our planet. <laughs> I mean, I, I absolutely tend to agree. It's like we are right on the precipice here of greatness in terms of being able to actually do something and help to save our environment and our planet. So it's up to us really to get it done. And the fact that we have been able to get not some victories as of late, I think is somewhat refreshing. It's a good jumping off point to to look forward to and see where we can even improve upon that ourselves and go forward in a positive way. Yeah, absolutely. DeAndre, thank you so much for joining us on 50 Shades of Green. We really enjoyed hearing your perspective and really everything that, sh that you brought to the table. The notion of climate optimism and starting small and, and getting involved in really any way you can, I think will resonate with, with so many people. And I it's absolutely critical to the future of the climate fight. So once again, thank you for joining us. And thank you so much to the people listening at home. We really appreciate you tuning in to our podcast and hope to hear you again at Climate Week and then look forward to seeing everyone there as well. So if you want to learn more about Climate Week NYC, go on to www.climateweeknyc.org and stay tuned for more Fifty Shades of Green. Thank you. Thank you.